Welcome, Alternative News listeners. This is 91.7 KOOP Community Radio. This is Bringing Light into Darkness, News and Analysis. I'm your host, Pedro Gatos, and we are transmitting from Austin, Texas, for your listening edification. Today is Friday, June 4th, 2021. We are pre-taping a show to be aired this Monday, June 7th, 2021, from 6 p.m. to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. At koop.org. Many of the shows are archived at pedrogatos.org. All comments are welcomed and can be sent to Pedro at pgatos00 at gmail.com. That's pgatos00 at gmail.com. This is our 59th post COVID show. A new world, but the same place. So stay tuned for a very informed and documented dialogue. Thank you for joining us. And we hope to have a recording of the show up on pedrogatos.org website for your closer scrutiny within the week. Again, thank you for joining us tonight, and thanks for inviting your friends to join us in future shows. So stay tuned. But first, in the battle of ideas, let's get ready to go to war. Pedro Gatos and bringing light into darkness, Monday news and analysis since we began broadcasting on Co-op Radio in 2002. Has been investigating and seeking to present genuine, truth-seeking perspectives of how U.S. foreign policy impacts majority populations around the world. We also seek to identify other human-generated behaviors that either create or aggravate human misery outcomes in the world that by definition are therefore preventable and reversible. Over the past 18 years, our record speaks to the veracity of our reporting. The impact of U.S. foreign policy in the world, on the world, population, is unrivaled in reach and in impact. Our presumption is that the U.S. population is a compassionate and social justice-driven people, that if we know the truth of the matter, we support policies that promote the most fair and democratic outcomes. The problem is, too often, we are misinformed by our government and our mainstream media. Therefore, this show is dedicated to critically evaluating all information before accepting it as believable and as worthy for becoming the foundation for building our worldview understandings upon. Consistent with Dr. King's views on foreign policy, our foreign policy reveals the character of our nation. However, it is presented to the U.S. public as how we would like it to be instead of reflecting and reporting the objective reality of what transpires in the countries we have such a large determinant impact upon. Tonight, we ask you to judge your perceptions of Syria and the impact of U.S. foreign policy on Syrian-U.S. relations with our bringing light into darkness, well-vetted presentation on current issues concerning Syrian-U.S. relations with our special guest, Daniel Kovalik. Enjoy. Welcome, Alternative News listeners. Today is Friday, June the 4th, 2021. This is a pre-broadcast interview with a very special guest, Dan Kovalik, that we'll be introducing more formally in just a second. The actual show date will be June the 6th, which is Monday, 2021, from 6 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time here in the capital city of Austin. This is 91.7 KOOP Hornsby, Austin. This is your community radio station. This is Bringing Light into Darkness with your host, Pedro Gatos. I wanted to just start off. We just witnessed very recently the presidential elections in Syria that we're going to get to in a second. And there has just been an enormous amount of themes that have been promoting deception from the truth 
regarding Syria, since bringing light into darkness, we started really following it back in 2011, following uh, the protests. And we wanted to address some of those themes that have been promoting deception from the truth regarding Syria tonight with our very special guest. And also, just to kind of set the table, I think one of the great misconceptions about Syria is that it has been a civil war. A civil war generally indicates that you have internal squabbles within folks within Syria, and the overwhelming military opposition power trying to topple the Assad government has not come from the Syrian people, but rather has come from foreign interventionists, or I should say foreign, predominantly terrorist elements that have been supported or at least enabled by the U.S. and the West, but not just the West, but by Turkey and by some of the Gulf monarchies as well. That's certainly something that we're going to have our guests speak to. Another thing that I wanted to suggest, though, is if it wasn't for the intervention by the West, the question would be, would there ever have been this protracted length of war that's gone on in Syria? And sadly, the result in Syria has been an enormous devastation of the Syrian population and of the uh, Syrian economy. And so I just wanted to start the show off by first indicating that the war has killed nearly a half million people now, this being the 10th anniversary of the conflict. And a UNICEF report that came out just ahead of the 10th anniversary of this conflict indicated that not only has close to a half million people died, that it's wounded more than a million and displaced half the country's population, including more than five million as refugees. And over the past year, the situation has been compounded by the severe economic and financial crisis and from the sanctions, etc. that it's also, uh, of course, the coronavirus environment has not helped at all. After 10 years of conflict, the UN report dated March the 29th, 2021, went on to say that it's the children of Syria that have been most disaffected and their rights undermined. Nearly 90% of the children are in need of humanitarian assistance, the report went on, a 20% increase in the past year alone. And 90% of the population has been plunged into poverty. This is, a, a again, a UNICEF report. This one dated March the 29th, 2021. So you have 90% of the population in poverty, 90% of the children now require humanitarian assistance. And the attacks that our foreign policy has been enabling, and therefore we as American citizens are responsible for, are decimating vital support systems. And this is what has been so disconcerting to me. I, I studied the Libyan 2011 intervention and illegal invasion, and their incredible water system was targeted. Before that, it was in Iraq. The water systems was completely decimated. The U.S.-led sanctions prohibited chlorinators and other water treatment types of needs from reaching the Iraqi people. And all of these preventable diseases emerged very rapidly and were probably largely responsible for the 500,000 children that died and such. But this ongoing thing of disrupting water access for families is a repeated war crime theme connected to U.S. foreign policy. It, there's a pattern here. It's not an aberration, but when you see it happening in intervention after intervention, then it indicates that there is a pattern. In fact, James Nagy, Dr. Nagy, discovered a declassified a report that he found in 
the United States intelligence services that indicated the targeting of the Iraqi water supplies and what would happen, which exactly did happen. Meanwhile, in this March 29th, 2021 report, the UNICEF executive director remarks, quote, attacks are decimating vital support systems. In 2019 alone, referring to Syria, 46 attacks were recorded on water facilities, disrupting water access for families in desperate need. The constant disruption of the Alouk water station in Hasakeh, which serves nearly a half a million people, is forcing civilians to rely on unsafe water, exposing them to deadly waterborne illnesses. While the world watches, half a million stunted children across Syria are being robbed of their full potential from a very early age. They will never be able to grow healthy brains if they are stunted. It is such a sad state of affairs that makes me so angry that as a result of the nutritional deficits, as a result of these basic needs and waterborne diseases, half a million children are stunted. According to this UN 2021 March report. And if you know anything about brain health, if you're denied nutrition, particularly during the first four years to five years, there are irreversible potentialities that we lose as a human being. And these are the things that this UNICEF Executive Director Henrietta Fors remarks at the Security Council briefing on the humanitarian situation in Syria back on March 29th, 2021. But with that being said, it is a great pleasure to welcome back to Bringing Light into Darkness, Dan Kovalik. Dan, thank you so much for making time for us tonight. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Mr. Kovalik, he graduated from the Columbia University School of Law, so he's well-versed in, in, in legal issues Back in 1993 was when he graduated. He served as an in-house counsel for the United Steelworkers, AFL-CIO, until 2019. He also has been an author and is an author on a number of issues. He's received the David W. Mills Mentoring Fellowship from Stanford University School of Law and has been the recipient of the Project Censored Award for his article exposing the unprecedented killing of trade unionists in Colombia. Basically, he's an expert on international human rights and not just what constitutes international human rights, but what constitutes violations of those rights. And his authoring of, of a number of books include the most recent one was The Plot to Overthrow Venezuela and How the U.S. is Orchestrating a Coup for Oil. Also, along those lines, we are going to be focusing in on an article he just published May 31st, 2021. It's called Syria's Truly Been a Site of World War. Their vote for peace and against foreign inter interference must be respected. And in that article, you allude to the presidential polls and, and polling of this past month, May 26th, with, with a huge turnout, 78%, an overwhelming victory, although it's been kind of demonized by the Western press. But you also... Dan, you also were in Syria, feet on the ground, and I thought I would just ask you or, or first share with you our appreciation for uh, your work uh, and illuminations on the stuff that we're going to talk about tonight, but also can you just share with us the experience of being in Syria and what's the most striking thing that, that uh, you came away from with? Yeah, well, I, I think to summarize what I came away with and, and, and some of the conclusions I have is that, you know, sometimes uh, I've seen 
the wars in the Middle East is being called sometimes the battle of civilizations. In the end, I think it's more accurate to say that it is a battle for civilization. And I think people might be surprised to know that it's the U.S. and other Western countries that are trying to destroy civilization, and that it's countries like Syria that are, that are defending it. And, I, and I'll explain how that is. So, first of all, Syria is an ancient country. It has amazing antiquities, Islamic antiquities, Christian antiquities, Roman antiquities. You would just be blown away. We went to a couple uh, Christian towns, for example, like Malula, which is one of the few towns in the world where people still speak Aramaic, which is the language of Jesus. And the church we went to there was just unbelievable. Had There was a chapel that was built in a cave, and there was a tree growing in the cave. I mean, it was just hard to even describe. And when the U.S.-backed Free Syrian Army, which one journalist in Syria said is neither Free Syrian or an army, <laughs> took over that town, uh, the, first of all, they tried to burn the whole town down. Luckily, it's mostly made of stone, so that was quite difficult to do. But they invaded the church. They killed some nuns there. They destroyed some of the antiquities and architecture there, and they stole some of the religious icons from that church. And it was the Syrian army that that stopped them in their tracks and and got them out of the city. And now it's a peaceful city, and the church is is standing, and and now it's quite serene. We took a beautiful tour through the church. And what's amazing, by the way, so Syria is, is, is this incredibly pluralistic country. People come from all over to this particular church to be blessed. And the interesting thing is, there's more Muslims who come to be blessed at this Christian church than even Christian, which really shows the, it's a very tolerant society. And so to have these jihadists that were backed by the U.S., backed by Turkey and Israel and the UAE and Saudi Arabia, come in and, and start to try to impose this absolutely heretical and bizarre form of Islam upon people through violence was, was quite anathema to what this society is about. And to see the destruction that these terrorists, and that's what they were, uh, wrought throughout Syria is quite heartbreaking. So, for example, in Malula, the, the town I've been talking about, they were unsuccessful in destroying the town itself, but what they did do, they burned down all of the, the forest outside of it. And so for miles and miles and miles, when you're driving, all you see are these little saplings because they have tried to replant the trees, but the, none of them are higher than three feet high, right? Because they destroyed the entire forest, all these, you know, old-growth trees. And they did that sort of thing throughout Syria. It really was an orgy of violence. I mean, this is a nihilistic project that we're talking about, that the U.S. Is, is firmly backing. You mentioned Libya. That's, you know, the U.S. backed the same sort of nihilistic project there, which has reduced Libya to, to chaos, to, you know, a war between at least three different armed factions. Slaves are now being sold on the streets of, of Libya. Right. The result of all of these interventions is, is destruction. I mean, there's just no... Denying that, if you look at Iraq, of course, they, they compared the 2003 Iraq invasion by the U.S. to the Mongol invasion mm-hmm. of the 13th century. And also there you had major, you had that famous museum there in Baghdad that was completely ransacked. The U.S. troops did not protect it. 
millions and millions of dollars of priceless artifacts were looted from there. Some ended up, by the way, at Hobby Lobby. I don't know if you know that. Hobby Lobby ended up buying some of those on the black market. No, I did not know that. And so you see this destruction of civilization. I mean, that's what it is. That's quite heartbreaking. Right. So you have this secular country, which you've described, that is a very tolerant society. It's the only place that I'm aware of, really, where you have so many different religious factions living side by side until the conflict was ignited or whatever. But you also have in Iraq, and you also have in Libya, and you also have in Syria, three countries that never knew or never had any significant al-Qaeda presence until Western U.S.-led intervention occurred. Now, of course, Libya had some in the northeastern Benghazi area, which they, which we claimed was an uprising that was going to be humanitarian uh, disaster if we didn't intervene, which was, which was proven to be a lie at that time, but nobody would really pay attention. But what I wanted to turn to and ask you to speak to, because you do it somewhat in your article, you know, the big lie, I mean, I can remember President Obama. He was making remarks to the United Nations General Assembly in September of 2015, September 28th. And he says, let's remember how this started, okay? And basically what he was referring to was the 2011 suppression of some protests, alluding to that that's how it started. But U.S. intervention in Syria did not start in 2011. It did not start that way. According to an April 18, 2011 article detailing newly released WikiLeaks cables, that from between 2006 and 2011, we had actually used some $5 million of monies to try to undermine the government there in Syria. And then later, which I found interesting, this guy Flynn, there was an Al Jazeera piece on ISIS. Was it a willful kind of inflammation of ISIS type of thing? And this article by Al Jazeera dated August 10th, 2015 and entitled U.S. Ex-Intelligence Chief on ISIS Rises. It was a willful Washington decision. And basically, Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, at the time he was the highest ranking intelligence official to go on record, said that the United States and other states, notably Turkey and the Gulf Arab states, were sponsoring al-Qaeda-led rebels in Syria. And all of this came out of not just him saying that, but was the declassification of a 2012 DIA report that was being declassified in 2015, because that's the date of this particular interview with Flynn. And he was indicating, as the report did, that we actually knew quite well that the Salafist and these very reactionary jihadist factions were the ones that were the backbone of the fighting forces against the Assad government. This is 2012, 2011. This is, this is from the very beginning. In other words, to be clear, there never was a moderate military opposition to the Assad government of any substance. Instead, the truth was the overwhelming percentage of forces of military force against the Assad government came from these terrorist groups who were trained, armed, and funded by the West and the Gulf monarchies. What I really wanted to get you to speak to is some of that prehistory. In other words, we try to set up this deception, or at least President Obama did, whether he did it knowingly or not, that somehow we were not involved 
at all. Before 2011, and therefore Assad started it, but the truth is... Under Bush administration. And the Obama administration. We were already very much involved in destabilizing... Syria. In fact, in April 18, 2011, WikiLeaks revealed in an article by the Washington Post, newly released WikiLeaks cables revealed that the United States State Department had been secretly financing Syrian opposition groups and other opposition projects for at least five years. So from 2006 to 2011, at least $6 million was funneled to these opposition groups by the United States contrary to the false narrative that Obama would promote that we only got involved in 2011 to support a democratic uprising, one that we helped finance. Can you speak to that element too in your comments, um, just about how the length of time that we've been involved? In your article, you eloquently refer to a 2001 statement by Wesley Clark, right? And so that's 10 years before this, we already had Syria on our hit list. Can you elucidate that for us a little bit? Yeah, so going in chronological order, as you say, General Wesley Clark, who was the, the one-point supreme commander of NATO, he revealed that he had seen a classified document saying after 9-11 that the U.S. was planning to knock off seven different countries, which included Libya, which of course we did, Iraq, which we did, Syria was one, Iran was one, I think Somalia was another, but in any case, Syria was on that list. So that's an interesting fact that has to be kept in mind. Meanwhile, in 2007, there was this great article, which I, I go back to all the time, by Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Seymour Hersh, called The Redirection, in which he says that as of 2005, the Bush administration, which had been, of course, after 9-11, at least saying it was interested in fighting terrorism in the Middle East. By 2005, and after the invasion of Iraq, which empowered Iran quite a bit, right, because the Shiites took over in Iraq and aligned with Iran. So all of a sudden now Bush is like, oh, wow, we, we really helped Iran become a regional force through this. So now we have to counter that. So they decided back in, again, as far as 2005, they were going to do that by supporting al-Qaeda-type forces in the Middle East, including in Syria. And this is what Seymour Hersh was talking about, again, in his article in The New Yorker in 2007. Mm -hmm. Then you go to 2010, and the interesting thing is that when he talked to people in Syria, a number of people totally unprompted, independently said that 2010 was the best year they remember. Assad, Assad the Younger, remember, he's the son of the older Assad, who had been the ruler there for many years. And, and by the way, he's a doctor, he's an ophthalmologist, the, the current Bashar Assad. He decided in 2010, one, to let up on the security apparatus, to start giving more freedoms, and to focus on economic growth. So there was a lot of hope and, and feelings of prosperity in 2010. And excuse me, Dan, let me, let me just interject, ask you to speak to one more thing. Because this is a really important history, and this is. But his brother, right? He died in some kind of car crash. He was really the heir apparent to his very oppressive father, right? But because his brother died, they brought him back from where was he? Somewhere in Europe or something? Going to completed the ophthalmology school or whatever. Yeah, I believe it was the UK. His wife, I believe, is British. In fact, she could have gone back. She had cancer. Could have gone back to Britain during the war. 
to be treated, and she decided to stay in Syria. Uh, but yeah, what I think you're getting at, and what I've also heard from people, is that Bashir Assad never wanted this job. Right. This is not what he wanted. He was not interested in this. And again, I don't think he wanted to rule with an iron hand. That was not his goal. He wanted to be a reformer, which again, in 2010, he begins to be. And what's interesting, again, by the timeline, is it, it's in 2011, the next year, that the troubles start, right? So where you have demonstrations. And, and again, I, I'll assume that, you know, there were certainly legitimate, bona fide demonstrations by people who wanted more democracy, more freedoms. And, you know, I actually studied sociology in undergraduate school. I always learned that revolutions happen not when things are getting worse, but when they're getting better. So it's not surprising that as things are getting opening up a bit, you do see more protests. But an interesting fact is, so as the protests unfold, we're being told that they're being brutally cracked down upon. Interestingly, there was an Arab League observer team sent to Syria to check that out in early 2012. The initial report was that that wasn't true, that in fact, protesters were not being attacked, and that in fact, there were some armed opposition people that were attacking the Syrian police and attacked a bus, I believe, as well, of civilians. So now, that report ended up being deep-sixed because that did not follow the narrative that particularly the Gulf states wanted, which was they wanted to pin everything on Assad because they've been critical in supporting the jihadists to overthrow him. But this is interesting, and you can research that. You can. There's a report from the Arab League on this, and it talks about the conflict that, that happened within the Arab League about this report. But the point is that it's not altogether clear that Assad was cracking down in, in the way that we were told. Meanwhile, also in early 2012, uh, what we do know happens, and which everyone admits to be true, is that you had these jihadist groups start to pop up throughout Syria. And they literally pop up, literally pop up. So we, when we were in uh, Jobar, which is right outside of Damascus, went to Duma, which is right near Jobar, uh, we went into the tunnels, into the terrorist tunnels. They're incredible. Hey, Dan, before you go on, we need to take a quick break for the cause. This is 91.7 KOOP, Hornsby, Austin. This is bringing light into darkness. And we'll be back with our special guest, Dan Kovalik, right after this. This is the premier community station of the nation, 91.7 KOOP. Don't touch that dial. Stay tuned. <laughs> 